Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another TED Talks episode. Ignore the audio quality for the first like 30 seconds. It does get better, um, apart from the awkward drilling that some builders were doing nearby. Uh, This podcast was recorded on site and it's about London. It's about investing in London. And I mean, Zone 1, Kensington, Chelsea, Notting Hill, prime London. So it's really, really interesting. Um, Ben has over, I think, 20 years' experience in property. So, you know, this may not be as. relatable to some but i think it really it inspired me you know to see what you can do on the kind of bigger spectrum of things um, and just to see the kind of profit margins but also the stress and the money you can lose you know more money more problems um, and we definitely talked through some of the issues and, and losing 100 grand and things like that that um this guest has been through just a reminder i am open for investments um smaller amounts at the moment but i'm still open for investments my earn and learn scheme is still well it's reopened now so yeah if you want to invest if you want to learn more about what i do or how i can help you the best place to get hold of me is probably instagram tej.talks you can try tiktok but uh well i'm too famous now on tiktok so I don't respond to dms with my 30 followers <laughs> ben welcome to the tej talks podcast thank you thank you for having me where are we sitting right now? We are sitting in my latest development in South Kensington, in Queensgate. South Kensington, where the parking costs 20 quid an hour. So, yes. <laughs> not far off. Yeah, this is, this is high end. So people who are listening to the Test Talks podcast and who are watching this, um, you will have seen a video of this development beforehand. But and you are the first, what I call, London developer or investor to come on this podcast. So I have so many questions. I was just Good. thinking, how am I going to get them all in? Um, so let's start off with... Before you were doing property, if there yeah. was anything else, what, what were you doing? Uh, I, I've always done property, really, unless you go way, way back when I started off working at McDonald's when I was about 16. But since I was 18, I was, I've been in property. I started off as a, as a local agent in Hayes. Oh, I live literally ne- in Hayes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> called Peter Rolf. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they were great, but they, yeah, the, the owner actually told me that I probably shouldn't be in property. I should go to uni because I asked too many questions, which I always laugh back at now after being, spending like 16 years in the property market. <laughs> but, you know. So then how did you go from being an estate agent to actually physically doing property? So I, had per- I purchased a flat when I was 19 and needed a lot of work uh, out in Wood Green as my, as my home. And did the work to it, lived in it, didn't particularly enjoy living that far, far over. So ended up selling it and then moving close to my parents, which was in Northwood. And I purchased another flat there. And I, any flat I've ever bought, um, even when it's been my own home, I've always done work to. So I kind of learned the building trade through doing my own homes at the time. And uh, eventually I moved across to buying property in Maidervale, which was kind of my original development patch. Mm-hmm. So I purchased a, a basement flat there, which was in a re- real estate. We got planning permission to add two extensions to it, added about 250 square feet, yeah, wow. and um, opened up, put 17 RSJs into it. It was a big- How many? 17, yeah. It was <laughs> a big first project to take on. I, I kind of always just jump in with things. I mean, obviously I, it's calculated, but. I, I, I always think if you could just get, get the property, then you can, 
figure out what you're going to do with it once you've got the offer accepted. Not once yeah. you've exchanged. Yeah. Once you've got the offer accepted. I'm not going to give bad advice to people. But, you know, if, you, if you're sure it's a good property, get it, get it agreed, and then, you know, you've got normally two, three, four weeks to, to figure out what you're going to do with it. And, you know, if the worst comes to the worst, you, you know, you can walk away from it. But no, yeah. I haven't had to do that, really. So, yeah, I kind of was quite impulsive on that, as I tend to be. And um, it, was a, it was a good deal and made, made quite a bit of money on it. And um, I'd spotted that W93 and W92, which are the cheaper parts of Medivale, were significantly undervalued at the time, I thought, on a pound per square foot basis. that They were trading at sort of six, seven hundred pounds a square foot, and Little Venice Prime Medivale was selling at 1,100 to 1,500 a square foot, and it was only half a mile, a mile away. Um, so I then sort of piled into that area and bought as, as much stock as I could in, in, in Medivale, in, in sort of in and around Elgin Avenue, that sort of area, if you know, made about. Um, and I, I guess, you know, had a bit of luck as well. The market in sort of 2013, 2014 was, was you know, buoyant. And I would, I would probably say 2014 was the, the peak of the London market, if you were to sort of average it out. Um, and so that, that obviously helped. But uh, bought some good flats, added some good value. And uh, then I met my uh, now business partner, and um, which enabled me to expand the business and, and grow it. So that's kind of how it happened. When you were, you know, buying these flats in in Maidenvale, was there like a long term goal, or was it kind of like let's buy some flats, make some money, sell them on, and just see how it goes? Um, I've always, since the first flat on uh, in El- on Elgin Avenue, I've always been flipping. I've never really looked to, to hold on to things, um, other than the, the properties I've lived in as my own. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I always wanted to, to be trading flats, you know, and doing them up. And I'd worked as an agent for a long time uh, by that point. I'd worked at Foxham for four years in the sort of boom years of 2004 to 2008. And I went into commercial property for a couple of years into the serviced office business, hmm. which I kind of wish I knew how massive that would be now. <laughs> yeah. Because I can remember some of the guys now who've got billion-dollar companies who were literally starting out in serviced offices in 2004. 2008 back then and now wow. they've got like the office group who were literally just two guys starting out when I was in the industry and I look at it now I'm like mm, maybe I didn't go to the right, right one <laughs> there's always someone bigger and better than you right always always but, right? Um, and then I went back into a state agency for Marshall Parsons okay. and, then, and then left to set up my sort of development business and, and with those first few deals because a, a lot of people who live in or around London say well I can't buy stuff here because I need 50, 100 grand just for the deposit. Yeah. How were you funding things at those times, back in those times? So I was quite lucky because I, I bought my first flat very young. I was 19, so I'm 34 now, so it's 15 and a bit years ago. And I'd had quite a few years of capital growth from my own homes, mm. which obviously was massive help. And I sold a flat that I owned and I was living in, in Northwood and raised, I think, I can't remember the exact figures, but probably 150k back then, which is probably 200, 250k now equivalent. And I used that to purchase the first one. Oh. Um, but then I also um, I spoke to my my parents, who you know they're comfortable, they're not particularly wealthy parents. But I sort of said, look, I'm going to go into development. Do you want to come in with me as sort of partners? But you know you'll need to put the same sort of money that I'm putting in, and they they agreed. I was lucky on that front. I'm an only child, so I haven't got five brothers and sisters where it would have made it a lot more difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, again, you need a little bit of luck when you do things. But I would have done it on my own regardless, but I had, because of them, I was able to buy two rather than one. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, and they, they, they agreed to sell their house when they were, they were away on holiday in America. And by the time they come back, I was ready to exchange on their house sale. <laughs> My mum was like, oh, when do we move out? I was like, well, you exchange actually next Friday. And, you so know. you better pack it back. Yeah, no, we had, luckily we had a month, I think we had a month delay completion. But they then put um, the same equity in with me and we bought another property. So we were buying two at the time. Yeah. So that enabled me to, to grow the business a little bit. But it's you know also it's been good for them because they've been they've been treated like any investors would be they've been paid their returns and and they've done well out of the business so yeah I think they're happy with their choice <laughs> I think yeah I think also it's like time I think people don't realise property is something that over time can literally start something or create a lot of wealth just by sitting there and doing nothing yeah and it's good that you say that so people are listening can understand hold on you didn't just pull it out of thin air you had to wait x many years yeah. for it to grow. So you said, you know, after you did all this, you then sort of started your development business kind of more seriously. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what was your first development deal of yours that you maybe were in full time? Maybe something like this. Um, well, I mean, I, I, as I say, it's probably the, the flat I did in Elgin Avenue mm -hmm. was, um, which again, I, I did with my parents, we did together. They, they were silent. They didn't really get involved too much, but um, it was a, as I say, three bed. It was a two bed. I turned it into a three bed. Purchased it for six four five, spent a couple hundred thousand, a lot of structural works to do, and had very obviously various other costs. And we we made about two hundred thousand, wow. uh, give or take, before tax on that, which kind of drove things forwards. And then off the back of that, uh, we bought another flat on Barnsdale Road in uh, in Maidervale, which didn't do quite so well. It, it wasn't a terrible deal. I think it was like a ten percent yielding deal. Which you know, look, if you could do a ten percent deal every day of every, every year, you probably, else, yeah. of course, yeah. But you know, when you're aiming to do sort of twenty percent or whatever, it's not ideal. But, yeah. So we bought that and, and, and did that, and then um, things really started to snowball when I when I met my partner, who's not involved in property really, but he's a you know a very successful businessman and, and, and invested in in me, I guess. Yeah. And then we started, um, we both put our money in the pot. By this point, I built up quite a lot of capital from the other deals. And we put, put the money together and we started uh, the sort of the Night James companies, which I now run. Hmm. Um, and we've done, now done eight deals together. This would be our eighth. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people are looking for a business partner, a JV partner. Yeah. I think everyone dreams when they start of that silent partner who's just like, here's a couple mil. Do your thing, pay me, see you in 12 months. How did that relationship sort of form? Like, how did he know he could trust you and how did you know you could trust him? Was it just time and hanging out or was there something? No, so I, I was invited to some drinks by uh, my old boss and valuer from Foxton's who are now successful developers in their own right. And they invited me to these drinks. And he, uh, he was actually you know, in, in business with them in some form. And uh, not that I went there to poach their, their <laughs> investor, but anyway, just, it was just the way something life pans out. And I, I, was, I turned up on time, and um, I always use this as a way to say to people, you should always be on time. Because my, my business partner now was only there for probably 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. And if I hadn't been there, we would have never met. Uh -huh. So I, I always use that to say, this is why you should be on time. But yeah, so I met him there. He asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm a developer. I'm just starting out doing it professionally. He said, are you looking for an investor? I said, yes, I am. Of course I am. When people ask that, you're like, am. Yep. like, you know, you're in your head, you're like, whoa, I'm going, you know, I've been waiting for someone to ask me this for, yeah. for how many years. And, um, and that was that. And, and I did about, it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I did at least six months of due diligence. 
uh, probably between solicitors, I had to show him two or three profit and losses for deals I'd done to prove what I was saying was true. Um, the guy's a very, very sharp guy, and uh, you know nothing really gets past him. And I, 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 uh, he, he belt and braces of everything he did, which was good because it, I, I kind of felt like it gave me confidence as well. Because I thought, well, if he believes in me mm. as successful as he is, then you know that that gives me confidence to move forward. So eventually, yeah, we, we got we got things agreed, and um, lots of legal wranglings and solicitors' fees. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and then we got the com- we got the company set up. And as I say, we've done eight deals together. I think we've probably done four great deals, two that have been pretty good, and two that I would say weren't good deals. One one of which lost money. Okay, um, so we'll definitely come to those. I want people to see the balance of things, right? Yeah. So when did you switch from Maidavel, which is I guess still London, but. Would you call this Prime London? Are we in Prime? Yeah, I would, yeah. When did you switch from there to Prime London? Which, if anyone from the north, what's the difference between <laughs> London and Prime? And then Super Prime? Yeah, I, I mean, I always think Prime London... It, it depends if you're talking about values or areas. I always think Prime Prime London is sort of probably 2 million plus, And okay. Super Prime is probably 5 or 10 million plus, in my opinion. In terms of areas, I would say that Prime London would be areas like Notting Hill, Little Venice, those areas which are... Probably fifteen hundred pounds a square foot, seventeen, eighteen hundred pounds a square foot. Super prime London, going into like the really expensive parts, would be SW seven here, South Kensington, um, Knightsbridge, Belgravia, Mayfair. I would say they're really only they're the only super prime areas. Okay. Um, I mean, there are parts of Notting Hill where you can get two and a half, three thousand square foot. Same with Holland Park. Some of the big houses on Clarendon Road, around there, all the all the different. Um, Stanley Gardens in Notting Hill, this and really yeah, mega, Gardens, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing road. Um, but that that was how I would define it, either by area or by price. Okay, so, so how, correlated. Yeah. So how did you make that transition then from, let's say, maybe under a million ish in Maida Vale to now just being prime central London, where we can walk to, you know, the National History Museum, Imperial College London. Yeah, we are my parks here. Yeah, Harrods is up the road. Yeah. How did you make that transition, and why? Um, it kind of was organic. I tend to go where the deals are. So if, as much as I may, I, I, I viewed myself as a made of ale developer through and through, and then all of a sudden there was hardly any deals I was seeing in made of ale. And then I was looking in Bayswater and uh, North Kensington and Notting Hill. And I ended up just buying in those areas because I saw things that I thought offered good value. I, if I saw, I've, I've done a, I did a great deal last year in Ells Court, which is one of the best deals I've done. And never done anything in Ells Court, but it just okay. seemed cheap. It's first floor flat, million pounds, thousand square foot, massive ceilings like this. Not as big as this, but big. And the layout was abysmal: three bedrooms, two bathrooms, all these mezzanines everywhere. It was terrible. And you know, I just thought this has got to be cheap at this price. So nothing ventured, nothing gained, and we, you know, we bought it. And I guess the step up was that instead of doing made of ale developments, we started to do. Notting Hill based developments, which obviously is a price point above. Mm. So first time buying Notting Hill probably seven or eight hundred grand for most buyers, whereas in Maidavale it might be four or five hundred. So okay. it kind of does leap up fifty percent probably. Yeah. And then we just kind of leapfrogged around. So I've done I've done two developments in North Kensington, which is similar to Maidavale prices, and I've done uh, I've done a couple in Bayswater, which I think is undervalued. Um, and I've done a, yeah, a few in Notting Hill. Was it kind of was it scary? having that bigger jump, longer longer refills, longer time frame, maybe longer interest periods if you were borrowing anything, was it kind of a bit of a... Uh, was there fear around jumping up? 
I don't, I don't think there was, and I, I don't want to come across as sort of cocky and say that, well, there wasn't any fear. I think doing these developments, I'm so busy all the time. Like I, work, I, I get up at 6am almost every day. I'm constantly on my phone. And I'm working, working, probably six, sometimes seven days a week. And I just think you just don't really have time to be it's nervous about yeah. it. You've just got to get on with it and hope. Keep your prices low. Buy well. Keep your prices low. Manage the build well. Um, and just try and learn as you as you go along. And, and so no, I wasn't I wasn't scared, um, but I was aware that we were now talking bigger numbers. I think that the big step up for me was I bought a place in with my partner in uh, Sherlam Road, above commercial. A lot of developers don't like stuff above commercial or basements, whereas we will look at we look at stuff anywhere if it, we think it works. And got planning permission for uh, a huge roof terrace on the top of it. And it was a terrace of butterfly roofs in a conservation area, which are not normally allowed to break. Um, they don't like it, especially in Westminster. But ours had this ugly um, concrete roof, flat roof, chucked on the top of it. And I thought to myself, well, if they're telling me I've got to improve the conservation area to get planning, surely by taking that ugly roof off, I'm going to improve it. So what we did is we submitted two planning applications, one for this huge mansard extension, which we knew they'd knock us back on. That was kind of like the decoy, I guess. And then the other one was like what we wanted. And they and the guy was like, your mansard is ridiculous. We can't give you that. And I was like, oh, okay, what about the toast? He's like, all oh, right, I might be able to consider that. And so we made a few changes that they wanted, and they gave us planning. And I think it probably added quarter of a million to the value of that flat just wow. for that roof terrace I mean it probably cost us about 70 grand to build so it wasn't cheap but it was uh, and that was the that was the first sort of big money deal in terms of over a million that I did I sold that for 1.4 and I paid 7.75 for it and that was still percentage wise the best deal I've ever done I think and you know how did you know how do you know that certain things were going to add value because for example in Yorkshire you don't need to do any of the plaster work you've done there. You just need to give it a look at paint, new kitchen, new bathroom, and you've added, in percentage terms, so much value. How did you know that like these little things, such as a concrete roof, such as the shape of it, made it cheap, and you knew you could make it better? Like, How did you get that knowledge? I think, as I said, I was an agent for eight or nine years, and I'm very obsessive about property. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone that's ever worked with me as an estate agent in the past will tell you that I was always learning as much as I could and trying to sponge information. I would shadow other developers. I would always be reading. You know, I've, I've, I've always tried to take on information for as many people as possible. And I genuinely love property. I, I mean, I don't shut up about it. And, uh, you know, that I think that's helped. And I've, I've been able to learn over the last 15 years by just asking questions. And I think a lot of people, they, unless you really love what you do, you, you're never going to have that level of knowledge because you, you're not really that bothered about whether you learn yeah. something else. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think I've just just learned over time, and I've been doing it. I feel quite old now. I've been doing it, you know, coming up to twenty years. And, and do you think London is inaccessible to most? Do you think there's a learning period, or if I was new to property and I knew, you know, some stuff, did some reading, whatever, I could say, right, let me buy something and I was caught for a mill. Do you think that's? I, I don't. Sensible? I don't think you could do it from the get go. I, I think I have a lot of. I try and like put myself out there to people, and, and a lot of friends will contact me and ask for help with stuff, and I always try and give them my time, because when I was starting out, I needed that from people more and more, and people gave it to me, and that's why I think I was able to learn. Yeah. So, um, friends always ask me, I've got like 300 grand spend, you know, what do I buy, and 300 grand in London doesn't get you much. So, I normally say to people, you should buy something that's a little bit dilapidated, maybe a studio flat that you can extend or you can turn into a one bed or whatever, buy out in the suburbs where it's a bit cheaper, add value, live in it for a couple of years as your main home, 
and then springboard from there to then buy something at six, seven, eight hundred grand if you can, and at the same time work on increasing your income so you can leverage leverage your wages to earn more. But mm. I have to be honest with you, most of my friends that ask me advice about property don't take my advice, <laughs> yeah, which always annoys me because I'm like, I've spent so long trying to help you, and they end up buying a new build and help oh, to buy scheme or whatever, yeah, which I don't blame them because the government's obviously pushing them down that route, but. I am uh, not a big fan of new builds. I, I always think that really the, the, the developers who are selling them have taken all the value out of them anyway. Yeah, and they sell it above normal anyway. Isn't it? Yeah, and that may sound hypocritical because you say, well, I'm taking the value out of this flat, but I'm selling one of them and it's unique. I haven't, I'm not selling 200 of these flats in a row. Yeah. Because when you come to let them, you can't because you've got another 50 people doing the same. Exactly. So um, I'd always, I would always prefer to buy old. So then speaking of... of like buying and buying in London. Let's kind of maybe talk through, like, let's talk through the deal we're in. Sure. Um, how? Let's start with the beginning. How did you source it? How did you find it? How did you come across it? Was it online? No. Uh, yes, it was. So almost everything I buy is available to any Tom, Dick, and Harry on the market. I love that. People yeah. say, oh, if it's online, it's too late. That's rubbish. It's obviously. rubbish. Yeah. It, it's. It's. I think that's so not true. I think it's all about finding the angle. Um, yeah. And a lot of people. A lot of people that make the money, I think, in, in residential development doing single units like this, is, is, is about finding an angle that other people miss. Yeah. And, and even, like, the best developers miss angles, you know? Like, there's, I've met fabulously successful developers who I've seen them miss things, and I'm like, how did you miss that? But sometimes, you know, you, you've got too much going on, or, yeah. or you know, so I buy almost everything from, um, on, on, from what's open market stuff. Okay. Um, I bought my own home that I live in now. I made a bill actually at auctions. The only thing I bought auctions is actually my own, my own <laughs> home where I live. But um, everything else is just open market. And um, this came to me from an agent contact of mine who I bought another property through in Ells Court. And a uh, good guy has become a friend of mine now. And, um, and yeah, it just, it just came to me. He said, look, there's a, there's a great flat. There's lots of legal problems with it. And but if you can figure out how to make it work, I think you should you should buy it. It's great. So I came to see it. And how long had it been on the market before you saw it? Do you remember? I think it had been on for a few weeks, which I should probably tell him off about. That. He didn't tell it to me <laughs> earlier. Actually, he was reminding me of that. But um, you know, sometimes that's good because it takes the sort of heat out of the market. People chasing it. So I think it'd been on for a few weeks. There, in fact, it must have been longer than that because there was a few developers that were trying to buy this. And it, it had fallen through with them because of the issues with the license oh, filtration okay. and the freeholders. So you saw this with legal issues and 80% of people thought, I'm out of here. This yeah. is just like too much hassle. And what, what kind of state was it in when you viewed it? How would you describe it? I, I'd describe it as ex-rental. So it's not, it's so a livable, but not It nice. was livable, yeah. You could live here. If you gave it a deep clean, it would be fine. You know, you could live here. Um, Things weren't falling off. It wasn't No, no, no. I mean, some of the stuff we buy is literally like, looks like it's been hit by a missile, you know. But, <laughs> yeah. some, but some of it is actually in quite good condition. I bought a couple of flats that have been in pretty good condition, you know. So what, what were the legal issues? And can you explain what they are for people who don't know? Sure. So the, with this flat, there had been issues with the freeholder. It was a charitable um, trust that owned the, the freehold. And they were known to be quite difficult. They weren't replying to emails. Um, just like a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of freeholders are, they're just not that, not that interested to help you really because it's, unless they're making money, I guess it's not really in their interest. So the license filtration here, because of the way that flat... What's a license filtration? Sorry, so license filtration is the permission, the consent that you get from the freeholder to carry out the works that you want to do. And that means any work? Any, well, generally, it depends on how the lease is worded. This lease had been rewritten by the current freeholders, and it's the, it was the tightest worded lease I'd ever seen, and I've seen a lot of leases. 
and um, it was essentially you cannot do anything in here without our permission. So you couldn't even paint. You couldn't even change the scope. You could paint, but you, you well, it's listed, so we can't change the scope. But yeah, I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't, we could have painted, but we couldn't have moved stud walls. We couldn't have done a, a lot of things. We couldn't do any structural works. And you just know, whenever I buy something, the first thing I do is Google who the freeholder is, do a company's house check. I go through their account. I go through everything because. Well, well, because you need to know who you're up against, right? If you've got a huge property company that you're who the freeholder, the chances are they're going to take you for every pound they can on the, on the fees, yeah? Whereas if it's, you know, a single person downstairs in the building, they're probably going to be a bit more reasonable to knock on yeah. the door and say, you know? So I knew that this um, charity were going to be difficult. I'd asked a few friends in the industry, like, what do you know about? And they were like, look, just be careful. They're going to be quite tricky. <laughs> I'm being polite. And um, so everyone had been aware of this, I think, buying it. And people weren't prepared to buy it without the license alteration premium, which is the cost you pay to the freeholder to get consent for the works, being agreed prior to exchange. To give them security and safety. They can yeah, do stuff because what they were like worried about was that normally I wouldn't agree that before exchange. I would do it afterwards because normally people are reasonable. But what people were worried about is they might go, right, we'll give you consent, but we want £300,000 as the premium fee to and do it. And they can say whatever. They're, they're not regulated by anything. unless You, t you, could, you could take it to... Obviously, take it to a tribunal or, or yeah. whatever, but the because the lease was so tightly worded, normally it says not to be unreasonably withheld on the lease, which that is the key phrase. If you've got that in a lease, you're fine. Because if it goes if it goes to a tribunal, they're going to say, well, you're being unreasonable by charging three hundred grand to add one more. Whereas because of our lease was so tight, and you didn't say that, and it didn't say it, it was been taken <laughs> out. Everything, I love that. <laughs> everything was worded so tightly. So because of that, no one wanted to exchange without all of this in place. And trying to do a license alteration on a grade two listed uh, flat like this, which has the level of period detailing and features that it does, mm. was a nightmare. And it just kept, kept falling through because of that. So I ended up agreeing the deal at, we actually agreed the deal, I think, at 100 grand below the next buyer, just because we were experienced developers buying it. And, and what, so what, did you, what were you buying it for then? So we were paying 1.35. I think there was a buyer at 1.45 who was an end user. But oh I think the seller was so fed up with it falling through that he thought there's no way an end user is going to buy it because of what's happened. And what was it listed at? Do you remember? <laughs> I think it was at one and a half. Okay, cool. So a, a fair a discount of some sort. Yeah, yeah, 150k, so 10% off. Um, and, and then, yeah, uh, what, what we did really is we managed to, we agreed the deal and we managed to, I've got a very good architect who's a very close friend of mine and I've got a very good solicitor and Together, the three of us, we spent sort of two or three days with my surveyor as well, who again is brilliant, and we just worked solidly to get this license alteration agreed. Did all of the plans, everything, the layouts, you know, the, every single thing we have to do. It's very detailed. It was, I don't know how many pages, but a lot. And uh, we managed it in two or three days, I think. I think it was 72 hours. And we submitted it. And we thought, well, because we've done it so fast, we've got probably like two weeks now until we need to exchange. Hopefully the freeholders will come back to us with the consent within that two weeks, which was really wishful thinking. <laughs> so we carried on plodding along with the deal and doing all the legals back and forth, and we got to the point of exchange, and the seller was like, well, you know, you need to exchange without the licence. But because we'd already waited two weeks, and although I wasn't dealing with the seller directly, I kind of formed a bit of a relationship with him via the agent, just sending an email saying, can you forward this on to him, say, sorry, we're trying our best. Okay. And we just tried, you know, we were just polite, and we, we apologised for the delay, and in the end, he just he let it run, and I think about seven weeks later, we finally got the license alteration. And wow! And I, I literally was about to give up, and I was driving 
driving through Tottenham, I think, I'm not sure why, but I was driving through Tottenham and I got a phone call from my lawyer and he just was like, Ben, we've got it. And I was just, I was ecstatic. Wow. Okay, <laughs> so it was on the market. Your agent friend alerted you to it, but yeah. you could have found it online if, you know, anyone yeah. could have. It had a, a pretty big legal issue, which you yeah. resolved pre-exchange, which is not yeah. normal. I assume people buy it with the risk. Yeah. Why was it at such a discount? Like, because when you walked in, okay, when you when you first walked in and you said it's on for 1.5, yeah. what did you think it was worth at the end when you'd done your business and cleaned um, up? I thought it was probably worth, I always knew it was worth at least 2,000 a square foot, which is 1,063 square feet. So, you know, that would have been 2.12. Um, I think I, I, I thought it was worth minimum two, possibly two and a quarter. Okay. Um, but the reason why it was cheaper was because people were, were told that they couldn't do this license filtration before. So if you're factoring in that you might have to pay 200 grand as a premium to this really cantankerous freeholder, yeah. then you're really paying 1.55 for it because the 1.35 plus the extra 200 that you're you're worrying about factoring in that that was I think that was what was happening so we were just lucky we, we were able to maneuver to get it done before so we had the certainty before we exchanged and that was the value add really that, okay equal equal to doing the refurb I would say that, that sorting that license out was important there was also a, a relative not not a short lease but 86 year lease which is not short but it's not long it's not mortgageable either right no no it is it was it was it was I mean most banks will, will lend 70 years plus some will lend 25 years at the end of the mortgage term oh, um, okay. there's a lot of misconceptions about leases in London <laughs> but, but yeah so we uh, the lease we had to extend which cost us about 23,000 that's cheap yeah because it was over 80 years we didn't have to pay the marriage value to the freeholder so we didn't have to pay any any of that to him which again would have if it had been 79 years, we probably would have paid 75,000 for lease extension. It would have jumped up significantly. Yeah, or, or and I guess you knowing that means that, you know, for example, someone might have, I might have looked at that and said, the lease is going to cost me so much, the house is yeah, a yeah. million. But you looked at it and said, no, it's, we've got a year, we're good. Which, yeah. which I think is something that you may not realise. Yeah. I think people are going to hear is that you had the knowledge to then say, whatever, it's fine. Oh, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I think... What, one thing about extending leases is, is you have to have lived in a property two years normally before you can, um, if my knowledge serves me correctly. And if not, you can you can get the current seller to serve a Section 42 notice, which you tend to do between exchange and completion. Yep. And you have to have an, an agreed price within that Section 42 notice to the freeholder. So not an agreed mm -hmm. price, a suggested lease extension premium value. Okay. It cannot, if it's ridiculous, then it can be thrown out. So you have to get it right. So what we did is we had a desktop valuation done for £600 by a local surveyors firm and they gave us a figure I think we started at 19k and we worked it up and we ended up paying 20k plus costs so we got it for what we thought we would and what did you extend the lease to? we added 90 years and with peppercorn ground men nice so uh, it's now 176 years okay um, and I think because this area has a lot of buyers that are non-British national buyers a lot of people that aren't from the British property side of things, they, they don't have leases. If you go to Italy or Spain or France, you know it's quite an alien concept to people. And I think buyers in particular aren't British buyers or based in Britain regularly and understand leases. 
they are even more against short leases. And for yeah. them, they have lots of friends who incorrectly give them advice that, well, you must have, you know, 900 years, or you, must, <laughs> you know, which is totally incorrect, you know. But, you know, so that was, that, that was on my yeah. mind. And again, that's the knowledge that you have from investing here, from knowing the area, that your end buyer is thinking, oh, shit, I don't want this. Yeah. And so it opens up your market. So if, if you, so you, you extended the lease, you got the um, license to filtration? License filtration, yeah. If you just bought it with those two done and you sold it, would there have been a profit? Like, could you have instantly said, ah, get rid of it with a paperwork um, exercise? As people call yeah, it? I think probably if, if, if we sold it with the consent in place to turn it into, uh, to reinstate this room in particular. So obviously the people listening can't see it fully, but this room is essentially like a small ballroom almost. I mean, it's absolutely massive. It's, 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 it's absolutely huge. Yeah. It's your neck to look at the ceiling. Yeah, it's, yeah the ceilings are 4.2 metres and it's 7 by 7 and that's just the front room. And there's the rear room which we've, we've built into. Um, so I think it was all about getting consent to reinstate this room, have the three French windows across the front, mm. reinstate all these amazing period features. And I think having just the, and we had to get listed building consent as well. So we had a lease extension, we had a difficult license filtration, and we had listed building consent, which I've never done a listed building before. Oh, wow. So, yeah, <laughs> and this was like a difficult one to do because the lady who was the conservation officer, she was lovely, but she was quite tricky. And you would have thought it was, we were doing St. Paul's Cathedral sometimes <laughs> the way that we were being asked to do. I mean, things. some parts of it look as if you put the same detail in as they have. At least to my non-London yeah. investing eye. Yeah, no, it's, it's got some. It's definitely got the best period features of, of any of any place I've done, and possibly of any flat that I've been into certainly recently. But yeah, no, that was another tricky thing to do. It took us two months, and again, the problem is that the these conservation officers there's not enough of them in the, the various councils. So they have. She said to me on the first day, she said, I've got 70 cases I'm working on, and I'm currently two months behind on all of them, or most of them. Wow. And I was like, oh. So uh, that wasn't a good sign. Yeah, I mean, that is just a, oops, okay, we're waiting more, even longer now. And speaking of timelines, how, so once you'd completed, how long was it until you could get builders in? Uh, so we, ha we had a slight delay between exchange and completion, which I always try and do just so that I'm not drawing down with my development finance too early. Uh, we probably, we completed in the middle of October. Mm -hmm. Builders did a little bit of stripping out in December. I just put a couple of labourers on it very, very carefully. I got consent in writing to do a light strip out, um, which there, <laughs> the council idea of a light strip out is probably different to my idea of a light <laughs> strip out. <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 were, we were careful because we didn't want to get fined for doing it. We weren't supposed to. Um, and, and they did a good job, actually. And then we started the actual sort of main works. I would say the second week of Jan, because first week of Jan in the property world, there's nothing going on. Yes. My builders would go home back to Romania or, or Poland and they just weren't all, all my British builders are off. Okay, and when it comes to finding builders, now builders are probably every property investor developer's biggest absolute pain in the arse. Yeah. Even when they're good, they're still just, for some reason, it's the pain in the arse. This is a very expensive, and we'll get to the cost refurb. Yeah. You're dealing with materials where if you if you drop this table, that's two grand. Yeah, yeah. They got and it, marble can break easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? How do you find builders that you can trust with such high end expensive things and to do the level of finish which is so high above something that's twenty miles away? I, I, I'm very lucky. It's taken me time to find the right builders, but at the end of the day, um, you've got to put trust in them because I'm bringing them on board because they're experts in what they do. I am not a builder. If you saw what I build, you'd be, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, I, like even putting up a shelf, I could probably manage it, but it would probably be a bit pissed. 
and um, yeah so I I just put trust in, in in my guys and you know they I listen I try to listen to them you know I try obviously sometimes we have differing opinions but we've worked together on lots of projects now we're pretty close and I see them as friends and you know we do social things together every single project we do we go out and we have um, like a, a party or we do a Christmas party every year we, you know, we try. So you employ your, your building? I don't employ your, them, no. I subcontract. Um, and they, I've, I've got another business doing design and build, and they do work for both companies. But uh, they almost exclusively work for me. Um, Have you ever been ripped off by a builder? Never. Never. I think that's the first thing with you builders. You're the only developer. I don't think I've ever. No, never. I, uh, I, I think the first rule of dealing with builders who you don't know is never advancing too much money. Yes. And, you know, because if you're only advancing them 10K or whatever, the worst you're going to lose is maybe 5 or 6K of materials because they would have done some work. Um, so touch wood, I've been, I've been lucky. But, you know, I, wow. I just... I think you get a vibe about people, you know, when you meet them. You know whether yeah. they're good or not, whether they're going to try and screw you. And, you know, it's like anyone you meet in life, isn't it? You just try and, try and suss them out. And you seem alright. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Um, when your table's gone, you wouldn't say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Good luck carrying it. <laughs> it's very heavy. With the, <laughs> wow. Okay. It's about as much as me then. With the with the builders, then are you? Yeah, you know, I'm assuming you give them a spec of works longer than your arm, and you and you say sockets here, detail here. Yeah. Like like. Are you are you the project manager who's very yes. detailed, and you walk on site saying, "What's this? Why isn't it done?" Yeah, yet? I'm on site most days. Um, I mean, look, I'm always learning. I think when you stop learning in your business, you should probably exit the industry. You know, and I, I, every day I'm learning. And I, I was, when I came into development, I was very clued up on the property side, or fairly, you know, hopefully very clued up on the property side, but less clued up on the construction side because I've been an estate agent. I hadn't been a builder. So in the, over the last six or seven years, I've had to learn a lot, and I'm a lot more knowledgeable now than I was six, six years ago. But I'm, I'm here every day, or most days. Um, Maybe not after a heavy Saturday night. I might, <laughs> might, might wait till Monday. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, I try and be here as regularly as possible and, and sort of absorb what they're doing. And how long did this refurb take? This took about five and a half months. Um, That's good. Yeah, I think it was quite good. It should have taken probably four and a half, but we had COVID-19 issues. With yep. The kitchen was um, delayed or, or had to cancel the kitchen. It was coming from Germany and... I don't know. I'm not sure what the issue was. I think they couldn't get a lorry to carry it over. It's something very strange. I think a lot of people have used COVID as well as yes, an excuse yeah. not to, just to be poor in their business. Yeah, not, yeah. not many people, but some have. I've, I've found that. I've heard, oh, it's COVID. And I thought, well, you weren't that great last time before COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just even the same. Yeah. yeah, so that, that delayed us. And the wardrobes, uh, I've got a really lovely supplier of wardrobes, and he's a really good guy, but he, he couldn't get them over from Italy. And this was when Italy was like right in the grip yeah, of, the, yeah, yeah. of the pandemic. So I had to make a call. We paid four and a half thousand as a deposit. And I was just like, just cancel it. Give me a credit note. I promise I'll buy more wardrobes from you. And they, to be fair to them, they did. Um, and then that delayed us by a week or two. And, you know, we had a few restoration difficulties. So, yeah, a lot of this is original features. I mean, for people listening, can you maybe talk us through some of the features that are original, something you added? Sure. Uh, the, so almost everything is original. A lot of it's had to be restored. We've got the original panelling, um, which is beautiful. Six panels in this room, and then there are seven actually. And they're made from plaster. Like, these are made these from plaster. They're plaster, yeah. They're, wow. they're, they're plaster. They're hand like cards? Yeah, uh, they, we make hand moulds. We've got a, um, like a master craftsman. Wow. who comes in and he does all the, all the plaster. So not Dave, the old plaster from the no, 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 no. You've <laughs> got to do it properly because they want to know who your suppliers are and stuff. You have to put this on the list of building application. Okay. So, yeah, you can't bodge it. 
Um, it doesn't look, it looks... No. Wow. And the, the skirtings here, unusually, are actually all plaster. Really? Which is unusual. Although I did a, a flat in Linden Gardens in Nothing Hill last year, and that had plaster skirts. They are huge. Yeah, I think it's probably quite quick to just take the mould and lay them yeah, back, in the, yeah. back in the day. And we've got this incredible cornicing, which is actually 700 millimetres deep, which is ridiculously big. Wow. And this, this 1900 wallpaper, it's not original, but it was sort of part of the story of the house, I guess. Mm. This fireplace is the same period, um, and I actually have got to snag that tomorrow. <laughs> so don't, nice don't, blue don't look there. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the, what else have we got? We've got the, 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 the listeners can't see, we've got two beautiful um, Corinthian pillars here. They're gorgeous. Which were restored. All the doors are curved. The doors are, what are they, eight foot? Ten uh, foot? I would think probably ten foot, yeah. They are two, maybe huge. Two point eight meters. Yeah, and they they're, they're curved, but they've got plaster all the way around them. Um, ah. and then yeah there's so many so many beautiful beautiful features and it costs more like to restore than it does to yeah, just strip I mean, really anything period features something I've learned in development is anything that's got glazing involved is expensive anything that's curved is expensive and anything that's period feature restoration is expensive, expensive yeah. you know most of other, other things you can uh, you can get away with but all of these all of these we've got three beautiful French windows here yeah, and all nice. of the original shutters and they all had to be restored as well and actually, my general builders restored them, um, oh, wow. which they're very skilled. So they they, they restored all of that. Um, yeah, it was a labour of love, really. Um, we, we we added in terms of what we added. The only thing we were allowed to add and what we got permission to add was um, this beautiful ceiling rose. It's gorgeous, two meters wide, and that's handmade from plaster. Yeah, it's it's made from a plaster specialist. And is that made in situ on the ceiling? Like uh, he's lying it there. It comes in certain pieces. And he attaches um, it to the ceiling. Yeah, they keep changing their sort of... We've bought lots of these from them. Every flat I almost put one in. This is the biggest one. I think it was two pieces, the, the larger bit on the outside and the smaller bit on the inside, the two separate pieces. I can't just made out of plaster. Like, I'm used to seeing plaster yeah. slapped on a wall. and yeah. just, But like to see such intricate features is something that you just don't see in certain yeah. parts of the UK. Yeah. Right? Oh, we've also got the conservatory in the second bedroom, which is... Uh, where the leaded windows were, which I showed you. So oh, yeah. the, for the listeners that can't see it, it's, uh, it was the original, the conservatory at the back of the rear drawing room. Because this flat that we sat in was originally the double drawing room of the house. It's a very grand townhouse in South Kent with um, the boudoir, which was like the, the, boudoir, yeah, the retiring room of the lady of the house. Of and course. I showed you earlier when we were here the, the servant's stairs that go down to the old scullery, of which course. is now probably a million pound basement flat, <laughs> or not more probably. So funny how times change. It really changed, yeah. And I think that that's what's quite nice about this house is it's not just a flat. It's not just a flat. It's like, hold on. It has history that has meaning. Yeah. It has someone maybe royal, you know, someone grand would have lived here and, and paid for all these crazy features. And it, I think it's nice to restore it, right? It's, it's yeah, nice. I mean, I, I, lo I loved it. I mean, it's, I think I'm really lucky and I was pretty honoured to be able to do it because I, I used to drive down here when I was an agent years ago and um, I had a couple of friends who had a similar first floor flat uh, who are actually both now running their own successful property uh, buying agency. I won't, I won't say who, but they're, they're around the corner. And they, I went to their flat, and I remember looking at it thinking, wow, I would love to be able to buy a flat like this one day and develop it. And then literally two streets down from where they lived, here we this are. flat. And this is like a lot grander than the flat they were renting was. Wow. Let's so, talk about cost then, because your sure. kitchen costs as much as one of my whole refurbs, right? Ah. So I love seeing the cost of certain things because... I feel you can see and feel the value in difference. We can argue if it's the brand, if it's marketing, whatever, yeah. but undoubtedly, actually here's a question, if this was a magnet kitchen, would people walk in and say, ew, I'm not touching it? 
Um, I don't think they would walk in and say they're not touching it. Uh, I think if you put, if you still put an expensive Miele appliances in there like we've got, and you put beautiful worktops, beautiful lighting, you would probably get away with it. Although I think someone who knew kitchens and knew a bit about interiors would would see that the doors were thinner and the detailing wasn't quite. These doors good. are really thick, actually. Yeah, yeah I think they're 22 mil. Um, a lot of kitchens are 18 mil. Yeah. Um, but I, I always think when you're selling a flat, you if people find something that's a bit off-key, yeah. they go around looking for other things that are off-key. And that's true. however good you are at developing, there's always things in the building that you never quite get 100% how you want, and people will see them. So if you can kind of keep them happy, looking at everything, wow, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, not seeing anything that you've bodged or, or just not done properly, yeah. then they won't go around looking for other things, and therefore that, 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 you know, that will come it's across the offer. I guess, yeah. You know, the offer will be higher if they don't see any issues because buyers tend to think in lumps of money. So if they see like a scratch, they won't be like, oh, that's five 50 grand, quid. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, five grand. <laughs> no, but that's how buyers think, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know if, if, if there's a problem, you know, if the bathroom hasn't been done, I can do a really nice bathroom for five grand. But in the flat like this, the buyer will be like, oh, that's 50 grand because I've got to get my interior designer to design it for me as well. And, you know, that's how it is. So I'm trying my best to stop them thinking like that and just to go, wow, I love that. I think that's what you have to do, isn't yeah. it? Flips. So let's go through some costs. I love sure. doing this. The kitchen, including worktops, appliances, how much was all that? Uh, excluding labour, about 25k, 26k. Yeah. And what does it cost to fit a kitchen like this? Uh, got special ceramic worktops. £3,000. I think this kitchen actually was the first time we bought this kitchen and we would never buy it again, only because it's a lovely kitchen, but it came, normally kitchens come at least sort of with, with the various carcasses put together. Yeah. This was literally like a load of Lego bricks on the floor and my builder was rang me really annoyed and he said, like, where the hell did you buy this kitchen from? And I was like, look, I had to get what I could because of COVID and uh, it took them about, oh, I think normally they do that kitchen in three days, it took them probably seven days to do it. So they weren't very happy. So yeah, 26K plus fitting costs. And what about all the plaster work in the house? I think we spent 15 grand maybe. Not as bad as I thought. For the, yeah. for the level of work yeah, and maybe, maybe more, maybe more. It, there was a lot of work to do. We did a lot of work in the skirtings in the rear bedroom because they were a lot of them were damaged and trying to fill them up and make them, make them look, restore them, you know? So okay. may, maybe not. I mean, woodwork, you know, it would have run to tens of thousands of pounds. And the flooring, which is engineered oak. Engineered oak. The um, there's a bit of a funny story about this. The guy who supplies all my flooring was a developer when I was a young estate agent at Foxton's. And I used to, we became quite close friends, and I used to shadow him like every day for a couple of hours, much to my wow. manager's annoyance. And um, he then... You know, he went through 2008 recession. I think he had a lot, quite a lot of stuff, and it was a tough time. And he still got property interest, but he now just sells oak floors. Really, he doesn't develop anymore. But he wow. kind of taught me about developing, and he was the one that used to tell me the numbers and stuff like that, which is why I, I owe him really. And now he supplies all my all my floors. So we work together in a different way, and he he supplied this. Yeah, and it, this is this was about uh, I think about 85 pounds a meter plus fitting costs. So I, I think probably looking. 10 grand of flooring, maybe. See, it's not as expensive as it looks. You know, I would have thought, London, some of this, this would be way more. But actually, when you look at the cost of the whole price versus that, it's, it's very efficiently priced. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of other things. Like, I mean, like, these radiators are probably 1,200 pounds each. There's eight of each. them in the flat. Yeah, yeah, like, they're, these big ones. I are mean, they are right. sexy. I mean, the, the, light, the, the bus from punch fittings are 20, 30 pounds a piece. The dimmer switches are, like, 200 each. Like, everything adds up. All of the... All of these, um, these 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 bolts for the doors, 
I couldn't get them in the bronze color. The whole flat is themed in bronze. Yeah. And I couldn't get them in that color um, from any supplier that I had issues with it. So I had to get a specialist uh, metal worker to, to strip all the brass off and then remake them in that color. <laughs> the same with all the spotlights in the floor, all of the uplighters. Um, everything was custom done in bronze. So like that's where the money Actual starts bronze. to add up. Um, no, I don't think. I think it's a, probably a paint effect. I'm giving away the secrets now. It looks. I mean, I was going to say, it looks like a Greek statue. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it is very bronze. Wow. But yeah, we did on the terrace. We had to do the um, resin, resin bound gravel, which was you know there's a minimum charge because they normally do like a massive driveway. <laughs> so they're like, how big is it? I was like three meters by three meters in the little strip. And they were like, well, we we're going to have to charge you at least you know, seventeen hundred quid or whatever. So they they did that. And it, it all adds up. The labour costs there. And, and then, you furnish it and leave them with the furnishings? They can they buy generally buy the furnishings. Um, okay. So I use a company to I rent the furniture. Um, they give me like a, I pay for a year up front. Okay. Which is always you always get it. And you think oh, okay, that's a lot of money, but then you get a rebate. So I actually got I paid like fifteen k to rent the furniture and I got seven thousand two hundred of that back. So you and know, it's essential in these parts of London to furnish. I think so. I, I, even if I was selling something in you know the cheapest postcode in the UK, I think I'd still put. A little table and chairs just to demonstrate the space from Ikea, you know, for 100 quid. Yeah. Um, I just think it, a lot of the people that buy these, especially here in these in the more expensive flats, a lot of the people that buy them, they're not creative, creative people necessarily. They might be, you know, an MD in investment bank who is incredibly cerebral and mathematic mm. and mathematical and not somebody who will come in and go, oh yeah, I can see where that sofa <laughs> goes. So it's kind of my job to try and, um, you know, make it easy for them to see. And I think that's important because not, not all your buyers are going to be architects and, you know, you know artists who can yeah. you know, understand colour and, and the way things are. Some people do, but yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. don't. So I try and... It definitely makes them. a difference. Like, I'm thinking about this empty and this definitely, as, as, as sort of simple and basic as it might yeah. be, it still matches the theme. It kind of sets a vibe as well yeah. that I think also then can increase the price, right? Because yeah. they, they see themselves in it. Yeah. And you have carpet with silk in it, did you say? Some of the carpets that we buy have silk. I can't remember if this one does or not, but it's. it's and not I was sinking in it, people. Like it was soft. Yeah, it was. It's really soft, and it's it's quite expensive. I think because I did I did my own bedroom in it at home, and it, it's a very it's not a big bedroom. It's like twelve by twelve, and it and it was like eight hundred quid for that room, which I thought was quite a lot for a carpet. But because we normally about three hundred quid, right? So, but it's so soft. I mean, literally, if you haven't got shoes on, you can kind of glide over it. So yeah, yeah, yeah that was. Um, that was quite expensive, that carpet. I've, again, I've got good carpet guys who I just take their advice really on stuff. And um, do you design in terms of like the colours, the tiles? Is it you? Are you the creative master? Um, I am. So, yes, yes, I am, but I have help with it now. I think you need to be aware of what your limits are as you go up <laughs> through the price points. And I'm not an interior designer. I have an eye for colour and I have an eye for design, and I can design things and make them look nice, but. I'm not as good as an interior designer who's doing it full time. Yeah. I've got my friend Nan, who's my architect, Nan Atichapong, who is um, very talented and he helps me with the layout. So normally I'll find a flat. I love floor plans, so I will sit on Microsoft Paint. This is true. I, I use Microsoft Paint like for hours each week. Hold on, so you, two, we're sitting in a two <laughs> million so pound sad. house and you use Microsoft Paint. Well, I, basics, I, I do basics. to get away, to, to get across what I want. Yeah. So then I will say to Nanra, I've taken the agent's plan, I've played around with it on Paint, this is what I think the layout should be. I was like, you go and improve it, and he will change it a little bit, tweak this, tweak that, and together it's a creative process together. And we'll, we'll come up with the, the, the layout. 
He doesn't really get involved at all in any of the, the colours and the in, and the and the interior design. Um, occasionally, but not not really. I tend to do that. And then um, I work with the furniture rental company to pick the fabrics, and we go through it together. So you know, I pick the colour of the leather here, and I pick the colour of the and sofa. The, and the paint on here is exactly the same as the kitchen, right? The it's not actually. That's, wow. That's a putty. It's called putty, and that was a that was a paint to sample from the other kitchen that I, they let me down on in Germany. Because it looks, I mean, it looks similar, doesn't it? It, it looks, looks like, like a mushroomy colour. So all the paints from Little Green. We actually spray paint our flats now, so we don't, not okay. the woodwork, but we, the ceiling is the same colour as the walls, which makes spraying it much easier. Are the walls white? No, the walls are colour called linen wash by Little Green. They're like off-white. an off-white, yeah. Off-white cream, yeah. And we spray it, and we can spray this whole room in a day, which would take you know, a few days to paint normally. The spraying I've seen is the future. Yeah. And actually, you know what, the quality looks... Um, you couldn't tell me it's spray the, the finish is better than with a with brush generally but the only problem with spraying is when you have to do like here we've got to take these picture hooks out when you have to ha uh, roller it you can sometimes see the difference so it, when you're snagging it can be a problem but the guys are my decorator Robbie is exceptional and he uh, yeah he uh, is very good at making wow. it work so people you've heard the the, the, the cost it, it, the kind of cost you have in a in a two two point three million 2.305. So, yeah. so you bought precise. it. So let's let's go through the figures then, to top level. So you bought it for 1.35. Spent how much on the refurb? Uh, spent just over a quarter of a million on the refurb. Is that is that normal? Is that sort of like yeah? We spend between 200 and 300 quid a square foot, which to a lot of people listening will be like, oh, that's ridiculous. But it's really these are restorations rather than just refurbishments. And you, if you do it's the properly, you're going to spend the money. And then it sold for 2.305. Yeah, 2.305. But then there was other costs in there. We had the lease extension. We had 120,000 of stamp duty. Oh, we had yeah, probably yeah. 70,000 pounds of estate agents fees. Um, when you're selling it. Yeah, well, I, I, I tend to put, Lord, I tend to do joint sole agencies. Um, okay. And I try and, I, I'll always give it back to the agent that sold it to me. I just think that's unwritten rule in property development. Yep. And if you want me to sell you things, you know, you've got to be giving them a chance to, to sell things for you as well. Um, and I try and put the, if 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 not, I'll just get the two best agents in the area and put them put them on it. And if they if they're competitive and not that big a fan of each other, then even better, because <laughs> then they go hell for leather to try and sell it. But you know, most people, most agents now tend to get on better than they might have done ten years ago. They're yeah. these days. I mean, it was really <laughs> ruthless. I've heard. Yeah. So, what is the profit pre-tax on this single deal? Um, we still haven't run the full numbers yet, and I'm just waiting for my redemption statement from the from our lender. But uh, it will be between 350 and 400k. Is that normal? Um, it'll be about 20% on cost. Um, but we did it in nine and a half months. So if you annualise it, I ain't complaining. You know, yeah. and if you annualise it, it's going to be quite a lot more. Um, I, I wouldn't like to say it's normal in the sense that every deal we do is 20%. Yeah. I've done some deals that are 25%. I've done others that are, you know, with. I've had one or two deals where we've lost a small amount of money, you know. But most of them that are, you know, pull off are between 15 and 25 percent if, if we're doing well. Um, but now I tend to look at how long they take as well. I used to always be fixated on yields and profit figures. And one thing my business partner has really drummed into me is that um, the length of time and the return on capital is important. Yes. And, you know, I think when you're running a big business, you that's something you're acutely aware of. Yeah. Um, and he's drummed that into me. So now I'm a lot more like, if I could make 15% in six months, then I'd take that. You know, because making 20% yeah. in a year is, is not as good as you're doing two. But it's being able to find two deals, six months, six months, it's quite hard to roll them into each other. Yeah. 
Um, and and how um, like with a with a kind of deal like this, do you? I know we're talking about timelines. Could you find one a month, or do these come about every six? I don't generally? think like this flat. I think I could probably find five a year that are similar to this. Okay. Um, I, because I was an agent for so long, the finding of deals is relatively easy part for me, which most people is the hardest bit. But that's probably what I find the easiest part. The hardest part is probably raising enough capital to buy everything that you want to buy, you know. And especially at the moment when people are having to steady the ships in their main businesses, you know, there's a lot of angel investors out there who will give you their money, but these people are generally worth in the tens of millions, if not more, and they they're not silly and they're not just going to go. There's a million quid do your best, let me know if you make any money. You know, it's going to be, they're going to want to see numbers and you've got to have a track record. And what I've noticed is the more deals I've done and also the more I've been on social media, the more people I've had, I, I now, I'm now starting to have people approach me to do joint ventures with them and offering me money to do to do JVs, which is amazing. And, you know, and you've only been posting on social media for how long? Not very long. I mean, probably like, I, I joined... Um, the All About Property Group, like so, and uh, that that's got forty thousand people on it, and I it's kind of a lot of it's come from that. And um, I mean, if, I, I know it's true. A few months ago, yeah, not long, maybe six months. That's or That's the so. power of social media, right? And yeah. your track record, of course. Yeah. You can yeah. just post, you know. But and it, the, the reason I went onto that group was because there I used to go to a bar in town, and there was a bouncer there who was a really lovely guy called Dave, and he um, he said to me, you know, you must go on this thing, and I was like. You know, people say, oh, go on this WhatsApp group and you've got like 5,000 people all putting your deals up yeah. on deals. Well, yeah, I was like, oh, whatever. Anyway, but I thought, I'll do it, yeah? So I kind of humoured him and he was right. And then off the back of that, loads of stuff's happened. So I owe, David, you're listening, I owe you about five drinks. Well, <laughs> yeah, there we go. And so how do you, financially, how do you structure the deal? So obviously you've got your business partner or JV yeah. partner and you've got development finance. For people listening, so I want, I want to feed people to feel that it's achievable and really yeah, realistic. How is your finance structure? Take this deal again, for example. So it depends. So this, we had been buying previous deals with cash, which is great because it makes my life really easy. But the return on capital is poor, obviously, because yeah. you're having to put in a lot of money and you know, they're relatively getting less out than if you were financing and leveraging. So this deal was kind of like the first one in the blueprint for the deals moving forwards. So what we, I, we put down roughly, we'll put down 40, 50% as a deposit, okay. depending on depending on what it is, and then the bank will lend the obviously the funds for the purchase, the, the balance, mm -hmm. and then they will also put up the, the cost of the build. Okay. And then you have an asset manager that oversees it, and they will release it in tranches based on the receipts that you give them. So that means you still need the cash for the refurb. You still need the cash. It just gets no, no, no. Uh, oh well, yes. Well, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Like You're getting reimbursed. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you needed yeah, yeah, yeah. two fifty up front. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you could, have, you you could have had twenty or thirty or forty and just done it. And then done it. Yeah. They're very, very good. The bank. The, well, they're not actually a bank. They're a specialist lender, but they're, they're brilliant and they're, they're very commercially minded. And they've been, you know, a load of guys came in from another lender. And set this sort of hot shop bank. Uh, Ooh, not, you call them a bank, they're not a bank, but you know what I mean, lender up. Um, and you know, one thing that I'm quite cautious of is overstretching. Mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of people out there who will borrow 80, 90% on you know mortgages, you know, residential mortgages, and you can come unstuck. And I, I think by only borrowing 50 or 60, I guess we're lucky that we had the capital to do that. But, but you could put in just 25%. If uh, I think at the moment, moment COVID, they've tightened up. Most of the, most of these lenders are tightening up. I think with a PGE personal guarantee, they will probably allow up to seventy percent. 
at the okay, moment. Fair enough, yeah. We don't have a PG on this, and I try and avoid giving personal guarantees, just because it is a risky business that we're in. I mean, the chances of you losing your shirt totally are very small, I think, but it could happen. And it's, it's, you've signed it, and, so yeah, and I don't want to lose my house and whatever <laughs> other assets I've got. I want to be, you know, I want to keep them separate if I can. So. Um, if, if you won't put down a personal guarantee, most lenders will expect you to put in 10, 20% more in cash to, to obviously hedge their bets. With, 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 with so really, risk. what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, this kind of deal, as unachievable as it may look, yeah. with two, you know, two million end value, is actually achievable. All you need is a rich person, if you're not rich yourself. Yeah. I the rest of it you can acquire, you know. Yeah. If I hang out with you for a day, three days, yeah. I'm going to learn so much about doing this. So yeah. really what I need is, is a you yeah. and a rich person, yeah. or if you're both, if you're both. Yeah. And then, right, I, I just want people to see, is it that, it's not that simple, but is it achievable? Is it possible? It is achievable, but it will take time to do it. Yeah, mm. I think there's a lot of, I am a huge cynic of property courses, and probably I'm, I, you know, I won't say too much about it, but I'm, I'm a, I am very cynical about them, and I think, a lot of the time people overpromise to and they've sold the dream and it really Always. winds me up. And Always, I think a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people that probably don't necessarily have the, really in reality, have the opportunity, the chance to actually do it, what they're, what they're telling them to do. They get pushed into doing it, they lose yep. a lot of money and it's really Swipe unfair. credit card, yep. Yeah, yeah. Some people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like when you go to pyramid selling and, and, you know, people, you get the top 1% that are like the double diamond, platinum. And it yeah. is only that 1% yeah, exactly. of the thousand. And I'm not saying they're like pyramid sellers, but, you know, it's, it's, the, the, the level of people that actually do brilliantly well is very small. Absolutely. And, Factually, um, yeah. And I, so it, it can be done. I think if someone wants to do it, the first thing is you've got to learn property. You've got to learn the market that you're operating in. And, you know, start off with something small and build up a track record. And at the end of the day, there's been multiple deals that I've had to do to get to be able to do this particular deal. Yep. Eight with this particular partner. Um, you know, so it's... And it, that... that it's taking time. It's is it, not, is it, this is going to be a silly question. We both have the answer. Is it stressful? Yes, it is. Because, and also, this isn't my only business. I've got three businesses, and this is this is the main business. Well, so, it's very stressful then. So it is stressful. Um, I do. Is it worth the profit though? Does it? Does it? Yeah, matter yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, there's risk as well. You know, it's at the end of the day, the reason why developers, if they're doing their jobs right, get paid so well, is because of they're taking risk and they're leveraging capital, and they are. If it goes wrong. And I've got it wrong before, you know, and, you know, I've ended up, you know, I've, I lost 100 grand. So let, let's talk yeah. about that then. How did you lose 100 grand? Um, I, it, it was mainly, there was money lost on the deal and I owed, in, I owed interest to my JV partner as well, which had racked up and it essentially made a number of mistakes on that deal. It was, it, I, I bought in an area I thought I knew really well, but it was on the periphery of that area and I undervalued the, I, I underestimated, I should say, the difference in the drop in price by being that far away from that part of W10, which is Labbrook Grove. Um, and rather than, this is five years ago, and rather than contacting estate agents and going, what's the pound per square foot value when I finish this? I just kind of, because I thought I probably knew better, not knew better, but knew, knew, I knew more than I did in that area, I just thought, well, I'll knock off 15% off what, what I would get at that end. And it was wrong. It should have been like 25 or 30%. And that, that was the first problem. There was loads of things that went against me. There was loads of problems. The, we had problems with, during the construction. We, we overspent. Um, and I had to underpin the basement. There was lo lo loads, of, loads of things that went wrong. And it just dragged on. We put it on the market. And I can remember I was in Ibiza on holiday. And the agents went around to value it. I wasn't there. 
and I had had a few sherries and I was sat uh, in, uh, with my friends and I got a phone call from the first agent thinking it was going to be worth 1.3 and he was like, yeah, you should sell it for a million all day long and literally time stood still. Yeah, bearing in mind this was my like, first sort of development with my partner Ooh. and uh, yeah I, I my holiday was like ruined and I definitely spent less money in Ibiza because of that phone <laughs> call I think I halved what I would have spent because I just thought well because you always almost as a developer you always think oh, I'm going to make this money and you kind of try not to spend it in, ahead until of it's yeah. a lot of people do that you know they bought the Range Rover before they've sold the flat you know it's like well Trouble. so uh, yeah I, I cut back and uh, I was only buying one Bacardi Breezer at a time and what, what did your JV partner say? Was he like, okay, it's a great first deal? Or was he more understanding as most um, No, I think he realised that it was... Um, we kept the price too high for too long. We should have reduced it. And one, one thing I've learned uh, doing this for a little while now is that if you realise that you've made a mistake, you're better off almost nine times out of ten. Cut your losses, drop the price, get out of it. You know, if you can nick 50 grand, 100k profit on a million pound, million and a half pound sale... Then, which may sound like a lot of money to, to people listening, but obviously from a yield point of view, that would be quite small. If you can just get out or even break even and buy again and not spend, you know, 20000 on payment, repayment, more, uh, sorry, mortgage fees or whatever, finance costs, I should say, then, then just do that. And we should have got out earlier. And that was both of our faults. Um, and that, that caused the problem. Because also, properties become stale. If they sit on the market for six months, mm-hmm. people are like, what's wrong with this flat? And there might be nothing. Yeah. It's just been wrongly destructed. The way that you've decided to, to put it on the market has been incorrect. Mm. The message is wrong. <laughs> and, and speaking of mistakes, what is the biggest mistake you've made in your property business? Uh, well, I think buying that flat's pretty up far up there, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I, uh, I'll tell you what, just very briefly, there's a great story with that. Because we, one of the most amazing things about that flat we sold the flat to one of the survivors from the Grenfell Tower um, tragedy and we um, this guy he lost his wife really tragically in the fire she was the last person to die and before we did the negotiations we knew we were going to have we were going to lose money on it and before we did the negotiations we said to him look whatever happens whatever price you pay for us pay for the flat sorry then we will, we're going to give you all of the possessions in the flat because he had nothing it all gone in the wow. fire so and then we started the negotiations and yeah of course we, did, we didn't make any money we knew we weren't going to but it was quite nice and mm. a bit poetic that it was something that had been really bad for us for him it was a new home and a new beginning and he yeah. was a really lovely man as well with all his family we met all of them and so we ended up selling it to him and um, and he bought it so that that would be one thing the other thing I would say that I would advise people not to do is don't try and force the figures to fit the deal yeah. it's very easy to get carried away when you find a flat that you love. that spreadsheet yeah. yeah you're like oh, okay well maybe I can you know get a bit of relief on this and maybe I can you know pull pull the kitchen down two grand and in yeah. reality you should probably be bumping up by two grand and and I've I, in the past I've done that and I've I've learned now that if you start doing that you should probably walk away from it because it, it, it doesn't work I think those are, those are mistakes that I think we can all learn from. And the figures one is so important. Like, especially with the, it's easy to be like, oh, I might get some money off there. I might, but I've done that before and I had to spend more. And I was like, well, this didn't work yeah. out how, how I planned, did it? Um, if you could have dinner with two people, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, that is a difficult question. Um, I have got a few sort of, property heroes that I really look up to. Um, Shout them out, go on if you want. No, I, I mean, a few people I, 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 I massively look up to my original boss at Foxton's, John Hunt. I think he's an incredible operator and, you know, I, I'm always 
in awe of the sort of stuff he do, does. He's very dynamic. Um, and I, but I would probably, I'd like to go for dinner with a Russian property developer called Vladislav Doronin, okay. who's famous for going out with Naomi Campbell, but he owns, um, I believe it's called the Capital Group, and he, uh, he creates billions of pounds of developments all over from New York all the way over to, to Moscow. Wow. Um, and he was, he's the only person that's had a house built by Zaha Hadid, a uh, residential house built by her. Ooh. And if you Google it, it's the most incredible house. I think he spent $150 million building it. The guy is a really cool cat and he's a really, really... The sp- house must be incredible. I've seen some of her other you know, buildings that she's designed. Yeah. It must be incredible. So uh, I think I'd probably go for him and I'd probably also go for Pharrell Williams because I'm a big, big fan and I think he's... He'd be fun. He'd be good fun. He'd be really fun. And uh, I'm not sure how the dynamic would work with Vladislav, me and Pharrell. But maybe he likes <laughs> his music. I don't know. Yeah, there, there could be a vibe there. You could form a new boy band or something. Who knows? Yeah. Property developers maybe. and boy band. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe, yeah. So, yeah, Vladislav Theronin and Pharrell. And most people probably haven't heard of Vladislav, but he's a really impressive guy. Amazing. I've never met him. I'd like to. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. I'm, I'm yeah. sure it will. So, what are your plans for the future? So, you've done eight of these. Are you, you know, you love Prime and Super Prime? Are you carrying on here? Are you doing something different? And um, the whole stuff? What are you doing? I think I'm open to, to see what comes up. I've, um, I've got, as I said, I've got a couple of JV opportunities on the horizon. Um, I've gone from last year having one person that I was operating with to having potentially five or six different investors that have come through different ways. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to look to do more JVs. Um, I've just agreed a JV last week with uh, three brothers who are hopefully going to invest some money and we're going to do a JV together. Nice. Um, I've got, as I said, I've got a design and build business as well, which is quite busy. So I do this for other people. So I want to grow that as well. Um, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm, I, I, I think the market is a little bit overheated, if I'm honest. I think the, the stamp duty uh, holiday that Rishi has put in place, uh, Rishi has put in place, is a good thing. But by putting an end date on it, it's kind of caused a little bit of a bubble, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think that was foolish, if I'm honest. I think he, he probably shouldn't have put an end date on it and just cut it when, when he was ready to cut it. Um, so I personally think we'll see prices dropping in the next 12 months, probably 5 to 10%. That would be my, no one knows, right? Anyone that says they do is, is, is you know, probably um, being too cocksure. Yeah. But, you know, my opinion, if I had to give it a, a, a guess, guesstimate, educated guess, it would be 5 to 10%. And uh, so I'm probably going to be looking to buy smaller units and more of them. Is this a smaller unit? No, this is a big unit. This is, a, this is as my solicitor called it, this is your big, big old girl, I think called it. <laughs> this is probably not very politically correct. But um, we're going to buy smaller ones, I think, probably. Still in prime London? Yeah, but probably more made available, Notting Hill. 500 to a million, um, mm. that sort of price point. But hopefully buy a few of them, spread our risk. Probably still single units for now. I would like to start doing multi-unit developments. But in London, you're talking 5 million, 10 million plus, you know, to buy stuff. A couple more mil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure we'll get there. I mean, yeah. but it's just, you know... I don't want to, all of the people I've seen, the developers who have lost a lot of money, have done it because they've overextended themselves, you know, and I've got quite a few friends or friends' parents who were once fantastic developers running 50 million pound a year businesses and then they've, they lost it all in 2008 because they were, they just were taking on too many developments and, you know, bank lending was, was everywhere and it was cheap and, you know, you used to be able to self-certify. Do you remember that? You could say you had I don't remember. Year I don't remember it, but I, I've heard of the good old days. Or yeah, the, the, yeah. Bad, the bad old days, yeah. yeah. So, well, you can do it now with bounce-back loans. 
it's all sorts well, of Well, yeah, there's a lot of that so going on. It's, yeah. a, it's a bit worrying, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I, I just want to keep steadily expanding. I've just today agreed to employ someone to come work for me as kind of nice. like a number two young guy who really wants to learn the industry, got a bit of experience, and uh, shadow me for a while and learn learn about sort of what, what it is I'm doing. And then hopefully that'll take a little bit of pressure off because I've been working like a dog lately. What's the worst bit of advice you've been given? The worst bit of advice? Oh dear, that is a really difficult question to I, ask. I can't actually answer it myself. I, I've, I've never been given... I don't think, I've, I don't think people... Well, should we can flip it to the best advice you've been given. I know I cannot answer it myself. So that would be easy. You've got me out of a hole then. Because I was thinking <laughs> that's one question I didn't expect you to ask me. But the best advice I did expect you to ask me. And I think... Um, so... Net, I think networking in this industry is key. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But not, not just going out there and only looking for people that you think are a benefit to you. Because A, that's really quite shallow and B that's that often you're missing a trick I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of people whether you're in the shop down the road or you're meeting a multi-millionaire businessman you never know who that person knows and I am naturally talkative and outgoing person so I talk to everyone because I'm an only child as I said so I've always had to talk to people otherwise you won't, don't have any mates if you can't <laughs> talk to anyone right because I haven't got brothers and sisters yeah. so I chat to everyone, and if you if you sort of follow me around where I live, I you know I'll, I know the shopkeeper, I know everybody, and we chat. And you, you you'd be so surprised how you get leads from people mm. just by them remembering you and, and the fact that you're taking the time to actually bother to talk to them. Because no one does, especially yeah. in London. How are you? How's your day? How's your holiday? You know, have a bit of banter with them. You know, and uh, so that's that's some of the uh, best advice is just network like crazy, but try and do it when you actually it's part of your personality and you enjoy doing it. And if you don't, then Try and make it look like you do. <laughs> we'll find a business partner who can, and you can just yeah. stay at home. And then the, another good piece of advice I would give people that want to develop, especially in London, where it's all about pound per square foot, mm -hmm. is every day I religiously open right move emails on the patch that I cover and develop in. So I will open like 50 emails a day probably, and all I will do is look at the front picture, the price, and then I will straight away look at the floor plan, and I'll work and I'll calculate in my head the pound per square foot value. And if you do that enough times, day in, day out, for years on end, you will intuitively know the values of things. And you don't That's have to you know think. Mm -hmm. You just know. Yeah? And that is one of the best things I've, I've ever done is, is just to, to, to do that. So I would say to anyone, get on right move, get all the updates. It will drive you mental. Because if you don't do it for a week because you've been away, you'll have like 200 properties to go through. But, yeah, but that's how you know it, right? Yeah. That's how you can walk in and say, yep, done, I know what we're doing, what we can offer, this is a deal. Yeah, and that's, so that's, that's, I would suggest people do that. And also, another thing I do is I talk to anyone that works in property, estate agents, architects, solicitors, mortgage brokers, anyone that's got any first-hand, sort of at the coalface, experience of the market, what it's doing, mm. I will ask them how the market is in every single conversation. Like every time I ring them, it obviously is the same day I won't. Yeah. <laughs> how is it? Yeah. But if it's a week later, I will. And you, if you get, you, you tend to get a consensus of where the market's going. So at the mm. moment, I'm ringing agents every day and, I'm, and they're all going, Ben, it's so busy. It's Record busy. Sale everywhere, all, 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 yeah. all up through, from the top of England down, everywhere I've spoken to someone about, they're all saying the same thing, which is why it makes me a bit nervous about what, what's happening in the market currently. Mm. So I think if anyone's going to buy at the moment, just buy, but buy sensibly. I've stopped buying this beginning of lockdown. I've just said, you know what, I need to just see what's happening. Yeah. Because at auctions, people are buying it way too high. And so I'm just like, nah. Well, I've been on something auction today with Savills. I've been on a flat in Maida Vale, and I was prepared to pay 320 for it, a little tiny flat on a road that I've done a couple of developments on. And uh, it went for 400, and, which is ridiculous. Like, it's, it's worth, the GDV's 
500, and that's going to do it really well. And there was, they did say there's potential to put a mansard on, but I tried to put a mansard on further down the road on that road, and I was refused. They went to appeal, I was refused. I don't think they'll get it. And I think someone's read that and thought, oh, they would love to put that in. Yeah. Potential to extend 100 meters. Well, yeah, of course yeah. there's potential. Yeah, I think it was a bit naughty that they put that in, really. They it, didn't give a shit, did they? They yeah. put it in because they know someone's going to read it and say, oh, we get mansard. Yeah, I think they would have got an end user who's probably got a brother or sister on the road already, and they were like, oh, we'll buy it. You know, worst case, we, we put it's in still 500. It's a discount, yeah. Slightly, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a shame, it's a great little flat. But, but, and I've just been on something else in Made Avail, which I'm waiting to hear back on, um, which I won't say where it is. Because someone saying, will yeah. come in with a zombie. <laughs> but um, I'm hoping to agree that, and that's I'll just buy that on my own. Nice. Um, yeah, so yeah, we'll see. Cool. And Ben, if people want to get a hold of you for JV, for chat, for whatever, what's the best way to do it? So they can email me, bwilson at night with a K, James, dot co dot UK, bwilson at night, James, dot co dot UK. And then they can get me on Instagram at benjkwilson. I will follow you. I didn't realise you on Instagram. Yeah, or Night James Developments on Instagram, which I've been really slack at updating, and now I'm going to do it. Good. I'll put your links in the show notes as well, so everyone can click. Thank you. And follow Ben, thank you so much. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.